0: I remember many years ago when my son was about three years old and he was in our church's cradle roll uh, He had learned a new verse or he was asked to memorize a verse by the cradle roll teacher It was a simple verse Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 Children obey your parents Any three-year-old could memorize that And challenged by the teacher that week he recited it over and over out loud Children obey your parents. Children obey your parents like a broken record. He would say, Daddy, Ephesians 6 1, children obey your parents. And with glee uh, and with appreciation, I said, Absolutely, Andrew, exactly. Children obey your parents. Uh, one day before dinner, he was again uh, reciting this verse, Children obey your parents. When I asked him, Andrew, would you go wash your hands before dinner? He looked up to me and he said, No, Daddy. And then kept on saying, children, obey your parents. He was memorizing a verse for the sake of memorizing, perhaps for a prize on Sunday. But there was no follow-through in his life with which he was memorizing the verse in his mind. It may be funny for a three-year-old to respond in such manner. But it is not funny when a 30-year-old lives out that truth. Or a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old. When we talk about a change of life, for many of us, it is but an intellectual proposition. We know we need to change. We know the areas in which we need to change. We've even memorized the Bible verses that tell us how we are to change. We have heard countless sermons that have convicted our hearts about areas in our life we need to change. But we've never brought that intellectual proposition, that mental assent to a heart level, and actually live it out. That's oftentimes why when we repent of our sins, we ask God for forgiveness, that we do so intellectually. We do so going through the motions, but we have no intentions of really doing anything concrete with our lives to change. Perhaps we simply repent so that God won't punish us too severely, we believe what does repentance mean? Before we look at our scripture this morning, I want to take us through a, a brief theological survey and help you understand what is repentance. It may be a bit heavy for some of you, but if you listen carefully, I think you will understand. When we talk about the idea of repentance. Many of us believe that repentance simply means turning away from sin. We are repenting of our sin. We are turning away from it. But in the New Testament, when the word is translated repentance, it is translating the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia means to change one's mind. More than a turning away from sin, the very root of what repentance means is that it means a change of one's mind. But what About that change of mind is it talking about, and to what extent are we to change? In the biblical context, the emphasis for the word metanoia is a change of mind that elicits a change in action, a change of mind that results in a change of action. Both the mind and the heart are involved. They are tied together. To know is to do. To know is to act. So as it relates to salvation, repentance is a change of one's mind with regards to Jesus Christ. You change your mind about who Jesus is and what he's done for you, and thus the action is you place your faith in him. In biblical repentance, in relation to salvation, You are changing your mind from a rejection of Jesus Christ to an acceptance of what he claims he can do, and thus with it elicits the action of trust. But apart from salvation, there's something called sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which the followers of Jesus Christ, believers, you and I, after we receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we go on the process of spiritual maturity, a process we call sanctification, to be set apart from the world to become more Christ-like. Repentance also plays an important role in sanctification. In sanctification, the role of repentance is the process by which we are being set apart to be more like Christ as we change our minds from living a life of sin to a life that is characterized by obedience to God. I hope that makes sense. Repentance in a sanctified life is a change of mind through a change of action from a life of sin to a life of obedience in God. Whether it's talking about salvation or sanctification, repentance elicits from us a change of mind and of action a change in the way you live your life. But the sad reality is that you and I, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus Christ, young and old, do not reflect a truly repentant heart. How we lived before we knew Christ is the same way we live after knowing Him. And so this morning we want to continue our series entitled First Encounter. We've been looking at characteristics of someone who has had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. We've talked about the characteristic of hospitality last week. We began with adoration, and we talked about trust. And now this morning, we take a look at the characteristic of repentance. One who has had a true personal encounter with Jesus Christ should exhibit the quality of repentance. Repentance. And as we previously defined it, a change in the way you live your life. Now, what does that change look like? Let's take a look this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19, as we exposit verses 1 to 10. The Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19, as we take a look at verses 1 to 10. Luke chapter 19 tells the story of someone very familiar to us. Someone, we've grown up in the church, we've known his story since Sunday school. It is the story of Zacchaeus. But if I were to ask you what significance you remember from your Sunday school days about Zacchaeus, you would tell me only that he climbed a tree. You could even tell me that it was a sycamore tree. But that's about it. My friends, there is so much more than the fact that Zacchaeus climbed a tree. The tree is not that important. But what is important is that in the life of Zacchaeus, he exhibits one who is at a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, and it radically transforms his life to a life that is characterized by repentance. Look with me at Luke chapter 19 as we Look at verses 1 and 2 Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy The city of Jericho was a wealthy city It was an important city It laid in the river Jordan Valley And it commanded both the approach of Jerusalem And the crossings of the river that gave it access east of the Jordan Basically it was uh, the center of the ancient highway that allowed people to travel west to east or east to west. All this factored including their geographical center made Jericho one of the greatest taxation city in all the land of Palestine. And guess who was at top on top of this greatest taxation center the bible tells us it was Zacchaeus. A man who had reached the top of his profession. You could call him, uh, in the ancient context, the head of the BIR, or the head of the IRS. The, the chief tax collector of the greatest taxation center in all of Palestine. The Bible is true when he says that he was wealthy. No doubt he would be a very wealthy man. Probably one of the wealthiest men in the city. But also probably one of the most hated men. In that area. As we're going to find out in the subsequent verses. Zacchaeus, although wealthy, was not very happy. There was a hole in his life. There there was something missing. He he was lonely. He was uh, despised. He was unhappy. Hated by men. Without friends. Longing. Reaching out for someone. Who would fill the hole in his life. It's a different sermon for a different time, but we see from the life of Zacchaeus that wealth never equals happiness, nor does it ever equate to peace in one's heart. There was a longing in his heart. There was an emptiness that needed to be filled. How would he try to fill it? Look at verse 3 and verse 4. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. There was news. The most popular man of the ancient Near East in that region, Jesus, was going to be in Jericho, his hometown. He was going to pass by. The crowds had begun to gather to try to get a glimpse of this one who could save people, who could heal the blind, who could heal the sick, who could perform miracles. And Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but he had to mingle in the crowds. A very courageous proposition for this most despised of man in Jericho, perhaps, Waiting into the crowd because he was short No doubt they would have recognized this chief of tax collectors. Perhaps without him looking, threw him a punch in the back, pushed him. An opportunity not to be missed, to take out your frustrations upon this chief of tax collectors. Perhaps Zacchaeus would have been black and blue from bruises all day. What also prevented him from seeing Jesus from amongst the crowd was that the Bible tells us Zacchaeus was short. Short by ancient Near East standards probably meant he was less than five feet tall. He could not jump over the crowds to get a glimpse of this Jesus. But his height would not stop him from seeing Jesus. The Bible tells us in verse 4 he ran. He ran ahead. He climbed a sycamore tree. Now, Now stop right here. I don't know what is pictured in your mind, but adults, especially distinguished men and women of the community, do not climb trees to look for someone. We expect the crowds to part so that we can come to the front and meet them or see them. But no one would let him through and he could not see. And in the passion and in his desire to see Jesus, the Bible tells us he ran. He must have been so lonely. He must have been so desperate. He must had that emptiness of his heart so overcome him that he would follow through with the indignity for a distinguished man to climb a tree. When one is desperately desiring to see Jesus, they will not let any hindrance, any other factors prevent them from seeing him. Oh, if only we could have a bit of the passion of Zacchaeus to see Jesus. The sad part is many of us have lost that passion to see Jesus. There's so many hindrances, excuses, family expectations and commitments, cultural expectations, shopping time, inconveniences. The church doesn't have an afternoon service. It's too far away. It's raining. A thousand and one excuses and reasons why we cannot come to see Jesus or to spend time with him. If only but a bit of passion that would be emulated in our life of that of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus had a desire to see Jesus and nothing would stop him. And you can just imagine the picture in verse 4. He ran as fast as, little, as his short legs could take him to the crowds. Embarrassing as it must be for this distinguished a man to then climb a tree just for a glimpse of jesus now as you know this story well for those of you who grew up in church what is pictured in your mind i i know most teachers would show you this this serene scene of just this man distinguished on top of a tree but that is not what's pictured in my mind and that's not what is portrayed in the scriptures Uh, this scene kind of reminds me of a hysterical teenager, perhaps a teenage girl who is running to see the lead singer of her favorite boy band. In hysteria, just a glimpse of of this lead singer, perhaps. That's the type of hysteria that I believe is surrounding Jericho. As the quote-unquote rock star of that day, Jesus was entering to the city. Everyone clamoring, to get a piece of him, everyone calling his name just for a glimpse of Jesus. I remember being in London with Cindy many years ago. We were walking the streets uh, near the west end of London. Uh, There was a commotion suddenly, and everyone was running and screaming towards a direction. Apparently, there was a celebrity sighting. And we were tourists, no one knew us, and so we decided to run with them as well and to partake in this interesting occasion. And there we were as we saw the madness of people trying to get a glimpse of this celebrity, literally climbing on top of lampposts and trees and, and chairs and getting up on each other's shoulders just to be hoisted up to see, guess who Tom Cruise. Apparently, we were there at the world premiere of War of the Worlds. Uh, regardless of his religion, uh, Cindy wanted to see him. He's a good-looking guy, I admit that. And so I offered uh, my shoulder for her, Cindy, to get on my back to see Tom Cruise. Uh, she flatly refused, probably afraid I would drop her. But just for fun, because everyone else was doing it, we screamed his name to get his attention as if we knew him. Tom, Tom, over here, picture. About 100 feet away. In the frenzy, uh, I put up my camera. It was not digital back then. It was still transitioning from film to digital. Mine was still a film camera. And I, uh, I pulled up my hand and over the heads, I just snapped pictures, hoping to get a picture of him. He never noticed us, nor did he look in our direction or acknowledge our calls. When I got back to the U.S., I developed the film, and what did I see? Nothing. I caught a glimpse of his hair, the back of his head. No one to this day would believe that that is Tom Cruise. And yet, eight years later, Cindy would tell the stories to her girlfriends of how she was about 100 feet away from Tom Cruise. Never saw him. He never recognized us. That's kind of how I picture the scene of Jericho that day with Zacchaeus trying to see Jesus. Does he expect that Jesus would recognize him, call out to him? Jesus didn't know he was the tax collector of the greatest taxation city in Jericho from his human standpoint that we know of. Everyone was screaming his name, trying to get his attention, but Zacchaeus didn't care if Jesus noticed him or not. He just wanted a glimpse of a man who could possibly fill the loneliness the empty feeling the lack of love that he felt look what happens verse 5 and verse 6 when jesus reached the spot he looked up and said to him zacchaeus come down immediately i must stay at your house today so zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows that Zacchaeus is up in that tree. And he looks up and tells Zacchaeus to come down. Calls him by name. I love that. Jesus knows the hearts of men and women. He knows those who are desiring to know him and to see him. And here's a great truth, my friends, for you. If you desire to see Jesus, he will show himself to you. Matthew 7, 7 tells us, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. Zacchaeus sought Jesus and Jesus found him. If you seek Jesus with all of your heart, he will reveal himself. Many people wonder why their spiritual life do not improve ask yourself this question first do you desire to see jesus are you looking for him because if you are he will come into your life of course jesus knew zacchaeus was there he he saw him he called him personally by name and he asked to be received into his house Overjoyed Zacchaeus came down and and said absolutely jesus come And we talked about this last week when a person has had a personal encounter with jesus He will exemplify in his life hospitality He received the invitation of jesus to come to his house and I want you to look closely at verse one Remember jesus was not planning to stay overnight in jericho The bible tells us in verse one that jesus was simply going to pass through jericho no intentions of staying, but unlike our schedule-driven world, Jesus takes time out to care for the spiritual life of another person. Do we take time out to minister to the spiritual life of someone else if it doesn't fit into our planned schedule? From these verses, we draw out the basis for repentance. And if you're taking notes, here is the basis of repentance The basis of repentance is simply a personal encounter with Christ. We have sought him and he stopped where we were and he came into our life. Should that not elicit from us a change of mind and of action with regards to him? If I were to ask you, are there people in your lives that have profoundly changed you? You would tell me about artists. You would tell me about musicians, a teacher perhaps, a pastor, a spiritual mentor, a discipler. If these men and women have profoundly changed the way you lived your life, how about the one who died on the cross for you to change your life? He chose to meet us from amongst all those who were calling out his name. He stopped and he said, here I am. A Personal encounter with Jesus Christ should elicit from us a heart of repentance. A radical transformation of our lives as we change our minds and focus on about who he is and what he means to us well how is this evidenced that's the truth but how is this lived out look at verse 7 and verse 8 there are two all the people saw this and they begin to mutter here are the gossips jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner but zacchaeus stood up and said to the lord lord look Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. You don't need to guess at the spiritual condition of Zacchaeus. He was not a good man. Look at verse 7. The people tell us it is his reputation in the community that this is a corrupt man. He is a sinner. He is not righteous. He has embezzled us. But notice, when there is true conviction, there is repentance. There is a change in one's mind and in one's action to declare and to proclaim a new life in Christ. And that's what we see in verse 8. Zacchaeus took the steps to show all the community that he was a changed man. The day Jesus came and stayed at his home, Zacchaeus knew that The emptiness that his riches could not bring was now filled. And when we talk about being satisfied in Christ, being made complete in him, it is not he fills what everything else could not fill. It is that he fills all aspects of our life that we do not need anything else. Does that make sense? There's a great truth in that. So when Christ comes into my life, He doesn't feel the percentage that's missing. He feels 100% of our life's needs so that we can be willing to part with everything else. That is why Zacchaeus is able to give half of his wealth to the poor. And from that action, we have the first evidence of repentance. Number one, the first evidence of repentance is that we change the way we live our life. The evidence of a life that is repentant is a change in the way you live your life. For one who used to take from others to now give to others is a change in the way he would live his life. A complete change. If there is to be repentance in your heart, a changing from your mind towards a life of sin to a life of obedience, it must change you fundamentally to your very core not superficially and I wonder how many of us because I've done it as well have asked God to forgive us for something we've done wrong a sin so so we say dear Lord forgive me forgive us forgive me for what I've done And, and sometimes we may go as far as to say and Lord if you forgive me this time please no consequences I'll never do it again I promise I'll never do it again We've all done that. But what happens the very next day, the very next week, the very next month? We do the very same thing. It's because there's no genuine change. In his book, I Surrender, by Patrick Morley, he writes that the church's integrity problem is this misconception. The misconception that we can add Jesus Christ to our lives but not subtract sin Because sin is an ugly word in our 21st century. No one wants to talk about it. And so we just talk about adding Jesus. Come, Jesus. But a change in belief without a change in behavior is useless. Sin must be subtracted from our life if we are to add Jesus. You see, there are two kinds of repentance in the human experience. The first one is what we call the sorrow of the world, a feeling induced by a fear of getting caught. Well, we better not do this or we may get caught. Or perhaps we're caught. Oh, I got caught. I'm so sorry. Because of the consequences, we feel guilty, but, but it only results in temporary reformation of our hearts. There's no genuine turning away. And that's the problem. Because when we sin, nothing bad happens to us. Nothing. Or some little slap on the hand. And so here's our thought process. Well, whew, we got away with it. We dodged a bullet. And because the consequences and the punishment by the grace of God were not what it should be, we're not really sorry. We're only sorry that we got caught. Sorrow of the world. If we never mentioned this topic at all, you'd never feel sorry. But then there is another type of sorrow, which is called godly sorrow. And that comes through the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. When I've realized I've offended Holy God, secondary are consequences and what people think of me. But do I genuinely fear what God thinks? That in my sin, I have offended holy God. God is not pleased. And because of that, I am repentant. If that is your primary reason why you repent, because you have displeased holy God, the loving, righteous God who died for you, then you will begin to understand that a change of life is required for genuine repentance if I'm in an adulterous relationship and I come to my home to my wife because she has caught me and I say to her, honey, I'm so sorry. And she takes me back and yet I continue in that relationship. It's ridiculous. My words mean nothing. So it is in our relationship with Christ. If we say sorry and there's no life change, then we are adulterating ourselves to the world. But I've offended God. And There must be a change. If you're a follower of the Peanuts comic strip or, or, or Charlie Brown, you, you know about Lucy and how, he, how she likes to pick on Charlie Brown. And one of the running themes of this comic strip is that Lucy would often hold the football for Charlie Brown to kick. And Charlie Brown would always agree to kick the ball while Lucy holds it. And as he does a running start, and as he's about to kick the ball, she would pull it away, and Charlie Brown would fall on his back, you know. In one comic strip, Lucy begs Charlie Brown to kick the ball, but Charlie Brown responds, Lucy... Every time I try to kick the ball, you remove it and I fall flat on my back. I will not fall for your tricks again. Finally, Lucy broke down in tears and admitted, Charlie Brown, I've been so terrible to you over the years, picking up the football like I have. I played so many cruel tricks on you and I've seen the errors of my ways. I've seen the hurt look in your eyes when I've deceived you. I've been wrong, so wrong won't you give a poor penitent girl another chance? Charlie Brown was moved by her display of grief and responded to Lucy, of course, Lucy, I'll, I'll give you another chance. And so he stepped back as she held the football and he ran with full speed. And at the last moment, you guessed it, Lucy picked up the ball and Charlie Brown fell flat on his back. And in this last box of the comic strip, Lucy's last words were, Charlie Brown, Recognizing your faults and actually changing your ways are two different things. There's great biblical truth in that. Recognizing your faults and actually changing your ways are two different things. Many of us come to church. We are convicted of heart. We recognize our faults. It's good to recognize our faults. We're convicted. We're touched. But to actually walk out of the sanctuary changed is a completely different thing. Will you change your ways today? Some of you still don't get it, and so I want to be clear. If you've had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, which results in repentance, which is, which is a change of mind in how you view how you are to live from a life of sin to a life of obedience then perhaps you need to do the following. Let me be very specific. Some of you need to simply stop reading things that do not edify God. I don't care if it's the most exciting book out there. I don't care if you're in book five of the series of seven that you just need to know the ending of. If it does not honor God, if it it fills your mind with trash, stop reading it. Some of you need to stop watching certain TV shows, certain movies. That may be what everyone else is watching. But you would be sorely ashamed if Christ was sitting next to you. Stop. Change in your life. Not simply talking about it. Some of you simply need to stop cursing. Telling off-color jokes that are simply inappropriate in a morally charged world or much more for Christians. Some of you need to stop rationalizing sin in your life. Some of you need to stop harboring anger towards others who have wronged you. Some of you need to stop gossiping and spreading lies and rumors in which you have not received the facts. Some of you need to stop judging others. Some of you need to break off relationships, whether they be boyfriends or girlfriends or live-ins that do not honor God. Some of you simply need to stop cheating, cheating on tests. Some of you need to break off an adulterous relationship, whether it's one emotionally or or physically. I better stop now, lest we start convicting everyone. The list goes on. Repentance is evidenced in a change in the way you live your life. A life that is changed from a life of sin to a life of obeying God. The second evidence of repentance is also found in verse 8. Look what Zacchaeus says. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And note this. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. The second evidence of repentance is writing the wrong. Writing the wrong. Call that restitution. Zacchaeus did not only say sorry. He didn't simply change the way he lived his life, but he righted the wrongs. He gave back to those he stole from. Actually, Zac- Zacchaeus' restitution went far beyond what the law required in Exodus chapter 22, the most he would have to give back is simply double. But he wanted to go far beyond what the law demanded, and he said, I will give back four times what I took from people. Told you he was not a good man, corrupt man. He showed his deeds and his actions because now he was a changed man. You see, someone says a testimony is utterly worthless unless it is backed by deeds which guarantee its sincerity. Sometimes I'm sorry just doesn't cut it. It's not enough. You know our current political situation with those who are being investigated for stealing billions of pesos from our government. What would you feel if they came on TV in a tell all TV show and, and they cried and said to the Filipino people to this nation I'm I'm sorry and we'd all say okay great we accept your apology now you get keep all your billions of pesos enjoy of course not of course not that's ridiculous If they apologize, those tears better come with it, restitution. Now, if that's how we deal with people, why is that standard not the same with God? We say to God, okay, God, just take my, I'm sorry. I've even shed a few tears. But let me keep my money. Let me keep my relationship. Let me keep everything status quo. From this day forward, I will live rightly. No, no, it doesn't work that way. You have to go back and you have to right the wrong. Berkhoff, the theologian, says confession of sin and reparation of wrongs are fruits of repentance. You don't steal, you don't cheat, you don't lie. Thinking, okay, I'll be sorry from now on. You make amends. You make amends. So let me make this very clear for you, my friends. How do you right the wrong? If you owe people money, you pay it back. If you have been unfaithful to your spouse, then you make it up to them. You cut off that relationship with the other party. If you have hurt someone through words, you apologize to them in words. If you have spread gossip, if you have perpetuated a lie, you don't simply say, okay, well, I'm sorry in my heart. You tell the very same people that you were wrong. If you have stolen something, you return it. If you have cheated, you admit it. Why in the world would we do this? Why? Because simply it's the right thing to do. It is what God desires. I can't make you do it. But I want you to see what Zacchaeus did. When you talk about Jesus Christ meaning everything to you in your life, you are willing to part with all that you have gotten You know, if Zacchaeus actually lived out what he said he would do, I believe he did, one half of his wealth to the poor, the other half paying restitutions, righting the wrong four times as much, he will probably have to work the rest of his life to make those payments. He would make him a very poor man. I can't wait to get to heaven to meet Zacchaeus. I want to ask him about his life after he met Jesus. And I bet he would tell us, I am the happiest man alive. As I work to make restitution, righting the wrong, this is the happiest moments of my life. Because, my friends, the result of repentance is restoration. Look at verse 9 and verse 10. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Zacchaeus had Jesus proclaim upon him salvation. What a comfort it must have been to have the Savior pronounce restoration to his life. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we too can be restored. The lonely, empty heart of Zacchaeus was now filled with the loving care of the Savior. In every sense of the word, Jesus was now his friend. You see, the result of repentance is always restoration. In relation to salvation, it restores us to relationship with the Father, the Heavenly Father. Repentance in sanctification also restores us to fellowship with the Father. A holy God can have nothing to do with sinful men and women. When we repent of our lives, we ask for forgiveness. It restores that fellowship. So I ask you, is it worth it for you? Because that question has to be asked by yourself. Is it worth it to me? Is everything in my life worth giving up for a a relationship with Jesus Christ? That day you received Christ as your personal Savior, you said yes. Why have you forgotten that as we've lived on with our life? He means the world to me. Therefore, I do not mind living poorly. I do not mind humiliation, all for the sake of being restored. Many of us are prone to wander. We wander away and we wander back. Perhaps every Sunday after we come to church, we wander away and we come back. Restoration is ours when there is true repentance. Repentance throughout the scriptures more than the story of the prodigal son who is welcomed by his father from the Old Testament to the New Testament the grace and mercy of God is evident in how the heavenly father will accept his prodigal children back there's a man by the name of Robert Robinson he lived in 18th century London but he was a lonely man he would wander the streets of London, and on this particular Sunday morning, that's what he did. He heard the sounds of church bell ringing throughout the city, calling worshipers to worship God. But the sounds of church bells reminded him of years past, when his faith in God was strong and the church was an integral part of his life. It had been years since he had set foot into a church, years of wandering, disillusionment, and gradual defection from the God he once loved. That love for God, once fiery and passionate, had slowly burned out within him, leaving him dark and cold inside. As he was on the streets that Sunday, he met a lady pass by in a horse carriage who offered to share the carriage with him as she was on his way to church. He was not, but he took the ride anyway as it was on the way home. As the carriage rolled forward, Robert Robinson and the woman exchanged introduction. There was a flash of recognition in her eyes when he stated his name. She said to him, sir, what an interesting coincidence. As she reached into her purse and drew a small book of poetry, opening it to a ribbon bookmark and handed the book to him, sir, I was just reading a poem by a poet named Robert Robinson. Could it be you? He took the book and nodded. Yes, ma'am. I wrote these words years ago. Oh, how wonderful, she exclaimed. Imagine I'm sharing a carriage with the author of these very lines. He looked at the particular poem she was referring to. And he read those words with a very heavy heart. They were words that one day would be set to music and become a great hymn of the faith familiar to generations of Christians. And we will sing it during communion. It is the hymn, Come Thou Font of Every Blessing. And so he began to read the poem that he wrote Come thou font of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. And then his eyes slipped to the bottom of the page where he wrote the ending to the poem. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave. The God I love. Here's my heart. O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Robert could barely read the last few lines through the tears that had brimmed in his eyes. He muttered, I, I wrote these words, I, I have lived these words, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. The woman understood. And she said to him, Robert, but you also wrote these words. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Robert, you can offer your heart again to God. It's not too late. And it wasn't too late for Robert Robinson. In that moment, he turned his heart back to God. And as his biography tells us, he walked back with him, Jesus, the rest of his days. We have wandered but we can come back. My prayer this morning is that our lives would be as radically changed as it was in the life of Zacchaeus. Some of us are not dignified are too dignified to want to climb a tree to see Jesus. We wouldn't even think about doing it. And although we may not be willing to climb a tree to see Jesus, remember, Jesus climbed upon a tree to see us. He climbed upon a tree volitionally so that he could see us to extend the right hand of fellowship and of love through his shed blood that's what he did what about you in that encounter with Jesus Christ the day you met him has it elicited from you a change of mind through action Evidence in a radical change of your life and in a desire to right the wrongs. It is not because we are compelled to right the wrongs that save us. The work of salvation was completed at the cross. But we live a changed life and we right the wrongs because he climbed upon the tree to reach out his hands from amongst the multitudes who had gathered to see him. And he called us by name. And he called my name. And he said, Stephen, come down. I'm going to enter into your life today. Will you welcome him today? Let's pray your word and for the story of Zacchaeus, Lord. I thank you. I thank you that it's more than a story of a man who climbs a tree. I thank you that it is a story of a man who exemplified a repentant heart. Going beyond mere words but through radically changing his life he exhibits to all one who has met you this morning we come acknowledging that we have wandered away many of us have wandered away perhaps all of us thank you that through the shed blood of jesus christ we can come back but when we come back may it be with a a desire to radically change the way we live Because from amongst the crowd, unwilling to get up on that tree, to embarrass ourselves even, that's what you did in utter humiliation. Climb that tree, stretch forth your hands, and then you called us to come. And so we come. In Jesus' name we pray.